0: I don't think gun ownership is a white thing or an Asian thing or an ethnic thing at all. It's an American thing.
1: You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the
2: firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face.
1: Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all and demographics welcome back to the guns and mental health podcast produced by walk the talk america and sponsored by arms corps we love arms corps for making this happen and we welcome back repeat guest chris cheng hello top shot chris how are you
0: hello i'm great thanks for having me on today jake and
1: mike yeah and down south in lovely las vegas nevada is michael sudini hello what's happening, fellas and welcome back chris this is really cool. Chris, uh, I, don't, I don't really know how to, you know, tee this up because you reached out to us uh, with some stuff that has been on your on your mind and your heart lately. And um, I guess we could just kind of just go from there. But for for the listening audience who doesn't know who you are, why don't you give a brief introduction and uh, tell, them, tell them how we all connect and all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Top Shot Chris Chang, and I'm History Channel's Top Shot Season 4 champion. And my background as a gun guy is I'm a self-taught amateur shooter who uh, is in the IT space, you know, here in Silicon Valley. Uh, I live in San Francisco, um, and after winning Top Shot back in 2012, you know, I, I never imagined that I would get into the the gun community and, and the firearms industry, and, and you know, kind of all, all of these fascinating parts about our culture as uh, as much as I have, and. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I guess that's my, my, my very brief background. Um, and then the, the three of us, right, we, uh, we connected through our, uh, our work on uh, mental health initiatives, you know, firearm suicide prevention, and, and trying to uh, you know, make a, a real positive difference in the world. So it's uh, really great to see you both and uh, kind of dive a little bit deeper into the topic. And you know, I'm definitely here to uh, share a little bit of my personal story um, and sort of my, my relationship to mental health that I hope is helpful to, uh, to your listeners.
1: I'm excited because I didn't get to talk to you the first time around. I can't remember what came up. It was something with my family, conflicting appointment, something or other. I was really bummed about it. Um, cause so I met you a couple times. We spent some time in, um, last February at the VA's, uh, lethal means pr- suicide prevention conference in San Francisco and got to know you a little bit better there. And I was, like I said, I was bummed that we did, I didn't get to be on the first podcast that we did back in August or whenever it was, but you're here now. And I'm super excited about that. Um, we do spend a lot of time talking about, the stigma among cultures. And I've said repeatedly across many different forums that I had to come out of the closet as a gun-owning clinician with my clinical community. I'm wondering about the IT space. Do you find that more or less people in that realm are or are not gun owners and how that's been for you?
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's what was very surprising to me about Silicon Valley and and IT in general is there are a, a pretty large percentage of gun owners and if, uh, you know, if they're not gun owners, then they're definitely gun curious, which, you know, for, for me, kind of learning more about that, that gun curiosity, a lot of tech people are tinkers and gadget geeks and people who like to understand how things work. And, and, and they're people who are people who are very tactile. Right. As much as you know, a lot of us spend, uh, you know, a lot of time on our computers and, right, and in front of screens having an offline experience of, of being able to touch and um, kind of disassemble and reassemble items is a very, uh, I would say, like common theme and thread within the IT space. And so this attraction to to firearms, right, and, and learning how these tools, right, and the very simple machines work and operate has uh, been something that I've learned uh, over the past uh, nine some years.
1: That's pretty neat. That gives me an idea about how to reach people too. Cause I never thought, first of all, you, you gave me a new vocabulary phrase, they're gun curious. Um, cause I, I, I don't think we use that phrase often enough. Curious, um, curiosity does a lot of things to our brain. One, it opens us up to new potential and new, and receiving new information, which is super useful. And, uh, you know, circumventing fight or flight reflex and getting people to not be defensive when you introduce new information or new concepts. So curiosity is really, really cool. But I think when you pair it with, with, a a concept such as firearms or um or anything else that may be unfamiliar, it invites rather than commands the uh expression of new information or new concepts. So I, I really like that. But then also the 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 tactile tinkering thing, I never I never really considered that with like the computer space. and I, I agree that resonates with me. Uh many years ago I used to like build my computer my own computers and teach people how to do yeah, stuff. Yeah, there you go. since outstripped me because I'm kind of computer illiterate these days but but uh, it's it's a neat way of connecting that i think with people who may be into things with their hands um and the reason that's that's resonating so so much right now is just a few weeks ago mike and i had an opportunity to to show some people who were unfamiliar with with firearms and scared of them how to approach them and it was through the like the, the disassembly and when we had uh Tom Nguyen on our podcast too. And he was talking about how just dismantling and showing the mechanics really helps people to understand that it's not, it's not some, some weird wizardry. You know, it's, it's just, it's just physics. And right. And, yeah. Me-
0: right. It's uh, right. a firearm is an assembly of metal and plastic parts. Right. right. And it's sort of right. You no know, springs in a barrel, right. The frame and, and uh, yeah, once you disassemble it, like you mentioned, and, kind of people can see the parts and understand that right guns are inanimate objects that can't fire on their own and you know explaining how ammunition right works it's um, that I think that educational piece is uh, it's really critical to to help uh, right to to help uh, um, give people information that they need to make safe decisions, right? Safe and logical decisions for themselves, whether they are a gun owner or whether they're not, right? And whether, if you're not a gun owner, right, it's really important to understand how to safely, even just approach, right? How to safely approach and, and handle a firearm if you see one that's either unsecured or, um, right, if you just, if, if you somehow need to interact with a firearm, right, that you can do so safely.
2: Yeah. yeah. The One thing that about the, the curious part, and I think that Sometimes in the community, we make this mistake that like if somebody buys a gun, they're automatically part of like the two A community, like fight for your rights, you know, like defend the second at all costs. And I think that turns off a lot of people because there's a lot of people that I know that bought a firearm, but when they see our community communicate with each other, they're like, I'm nothing like you guys. I don't care about that. Right. And I think it's, <laughs> it's something that we need to keep in mind. So I like that approach of, you know, gun curious it right? it it's, just seems inviting
0: yeah and you know uh, what you just said also resonated with me right It's like just because you buy a gun doesn't mean that you are all about the Second Amendment and that's actually part of my story is I didn't buy my first firearm until I was like 27 years old. Um, I had shot a number of times before that my father taught me how to shoot at the age of six but it wasn't something that we did all the time. but even when I bought my first firearm at the age of 27, I didn't care about the second amendment. Like I didn't pay attention to it at all. I just thought guns are guns are a fun recreational hobby and activity that I do every so often. And I go to the range, you know, every once in a while. Sure. Right. I have my, 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 my firearms for home defense, but that was sort of, that was sort of it, right. I didn't have a second amendment mentality and I didn't, I wasn't following the issues. Um, And so I think you're right that we need to understand that, gun owners come from different stripes and and perspectives and, um, right, they they aren't necessarily a Second Amendment advocate. And uh, I mean, I would argue, uh, I mean, they don't obviously need to be or have to be. Uh, It's obviously uh, great if they are and something that we should advocate for and encourage. But I think when it comes to, um, especially sort of this like cross section of mental health and you know, legal rights and, and due process and the Second Amendment, that's where it, um, I mean, I guess at the end, it, it all just, for me, it always comes back to education, right, and just making sure that people understand the rights and responsibilities that come with firearms ownership, how does your own personal mental health and your, what role should your family and friends play, right, in your firearms ownership. You know, for example, you know, I'm married. My husband and I, we've been married for, let's say, we're coming up to uh, six years this August. Um, you know, we've been been together for eleven years, and he's known me as a gun owner right the entire time. Now he doesn't shoot guns. Like he's he shot them before, but right, he is not a gun owner. He doesn't care about gun culture. He doesn't care about the firearms community, like in the slightest. Uh, but I still need to educate him around safe firearm storage, right? And if, for example, I'm cleaning a shotgun, right, at home, and, you know, if, if it's disassembled, he needs to understand that if he happens to walk into the, you know, the dining room where I have the gun disassembled, that, that it's, it's safe, right? It's, it's in a safe condition. Like, he, he needs to understand and have the confidence that I am going to leave Right, uh, a weapon that I'm cleaning. If if I'm in an inse- unsecured room, that if I happen to, like go to the bathroom or just like step out, that like right, if I'm cleaning, that the gun's going to be in a safe condition. Um, or you know, sometimes uh, you know, some people kind of worry at the simple side of a disassembled firearm. Right, if they don't understand, uh, if the gun is disassembled, that it just can't operate. Right, so even some some like very basic fundamentals like that back to. Right, it's on the gun owner to educate, you know, our family and our friends around safe storage and safe handling, and um, right, how to how to make sure everybody's you know comfortable with, with firearms, um, you know, in the house and uh, um, you know, and and in our cars or on our on our persons or wherever wherever they may be.
1: How's it for you living in California with the the way that the laws are there? Uh, with regard to having guns on your person or in your car, um, I, I guess I'll just leave it there because I have a reason for asking this, but I, I want to know what your answer is just on that general question.
0: Yeah, it's an extremely confusing patchwork of of state laws, local laws. Um, you know, I see CCWs, for example, you know, it, the issuance of CCWs varies by, you know, from county to county, in San Francisco. Is one of the last holdouts that's still a may issue uh, jurisdiction. Um, But uh, beyond CCW, it's you know bullet buttons on AR-15s and magazine capacity restrictions, safe storage requirements. It's it's so confusing, and even for someone like me who's 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 been studying this now for for nine years, and the law keeps on changing too in California and you know, at at the local level is extremely hard to keep track of, of all these uh, changes that take place.
1: I guess uh, twofold is the, the basis of my question. One is we had uh, Laura Smith on talking about um, how, if she is in a mental health crisis, she can't just have her husband change the, the code on the safe because he would then be deemed owner quote unquote of her guns, which you're not allowed to do in California which is distressing uh, for people who are trying to get help, they can't even give them to their spouse. And then um, if you're not allowed to carry in public, which is like the odds of having your home invaded is are like way, way, way lower than encountering some uh, emergency in public. But if you're not allowed to carry in public, how 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 do you even get a sense of safety uh, you know in a, in a city like where you live?
0: Yeah, uh, it's a a really great question. And, you know, over the past year and a half or so, with the streets emptied out because of the pandemic and everybody sheltering in place, the the unsavory elements of of the city have have taken over. Hmm. And it's everything from drug dealers to drug addicts to the mentally ill to the mentally unstable and violent and aggressive. Uh, We've got a huge homeless problem. Uh, and so that, that feeling of, uh, I would say, more San Francisco residents' feeling of personal safety has been totally shattered, right? That, that for uh, a city many of us once thought was very safe, uh, it, it is no longer in many parts of the city. And it got you know, so bad uh, for me and my husband to the point where I said, you know, after the first maybe three or four months of the pandemic, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be, you know, walking out of the home in the morning just to go get a cup of coffee, right? i like I just want to go get a cup of coffee. And, you know, I step outside and, you know, first get hit with the stench of human feces and urine, you know, stale on the sidewalk. You see human misery just, you know, strewn all about the neighborhood. And I, I live in a very nice neighborhood. And for that to be the progression over the past few years where it's only getting worse and then the pandemic made it even even more worse and and unpalatable. Uh, I got to the point where I'm like, I, I said to my husband, Nate, I'm like, I, I can't do this. Like, this is this is a miserable place to be right now because at least before the pandemic, you know, I, I could go to, I went to work, right? So like, I'd leave for work. I'd be at the office for, you know, eight hours a day and then come home and sure, right? Like, deal with, with the street mess. But But during the pandemic, right, to see it, and be around it and to feel trapped in your own home, right? It's like, why would I wanna go outside if I'm just gonna be at risk of getting accosted? Um, I just got a neighborhood email about two hours ago that this, this known crazy you know, neighborhood guy, he assaulted somebody last week and finally, Right. After years and years and years of neighborhood nine one one calls, fifty one fifty holds, all those other things, this guy's finally getting prosecuted for felony charges. Right. And, and it's like, look, like this guy's mentally ill, like he doesn't belong in jail, right? He belongs in a mental institution and needs to be forced by the state, right, into treatment. Like it's just it, it's anyway, so it's it's just been heartbreaking, right? Because residents feel unsafe the people who need help aren't getting help, whether it's mental health services or, you know, uh, a warm bed or a cot, right? And shelter, you know, it's the, the the city's just a mess. And so my husband and I, we, we accelerated one of our life plans and bought a second property. And we're now in the Santa Cruz mountains Hmm. on almost 200 acres of land. And I don't deal with any of that stuff. Right. And I mean, thankfully that was, a solution, right. And an option for us was to just literally get out of Dodge. And I'll say for my mental health, it's been glorious, right. To just not have to deal with the pressure cooker of, you know, being in a city that's just being ravaged by all sorts of, um, all sorts of challenges. Right. And the, the, city leadership is pretty inept and it's uh, you know, it, it's just a very, very sad situation. So um That was a very long-winded answer to a a very short answer. No,
2: no, it's uh, it's, last time we were all together, right before the world ended, we were all together at a conference, right? We were at Dr. Lemley's um, conference in San Francisco, and Jake and I actually rented an Airbnb. And it was interesting because if you came out of the Airbnb and you went left, it was like beautiful San Francisco, no issues. If you went right, it was a war zone. And I'm a pretty big guy, like, and I got uncomfortable a couple of times coming from the right back to the, back to the Airbnb, right? Like I actually saw people shooting up in public, like on the street, as we would like, you know, talking on our cell phones and there were tents and you had to navigate through the tents and it's like, you want to have compassion. Of course, like everybody's a human, right? And some people just fall in bad times, but there comes a point where it's too much, like they literally let the homeless take over the entire street. (laughs) I mean, so I feel everything you're saying, man. And uh, you had issues too before, like you shared a story last time you were on, where didn't you have almost like a a home intruder that, that came and. Long
0: story short, it was 1130 PM on a Sunday. Uh, My husband and I were like wrapping up some laundry, right. Just getting ready for the work week and 1130 PM at night on a Sunday, all of a sudden there's like really loud banging on the door, someone on my doorstep screaming, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Open up, open up. And in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, like, this is like classic trick, right? Somebody shows up your doorstep with some, you know, made up emergency, you know, I need to use your phone, you know, please open up. And next thing you know, right. You're, you're a victim of a home invasion when you open your door. So, um, it was extremely distressful, right? And this guy was saying, you know, if you don't open up, I'm gonna, you know, break your, you know, why we have some glass window panes on the door. If you bust them open, you know, you you, you could unlock the door. It's sort of, you have to, you know, reach in. So it's not super easy, but still, I mean, right? I mean, given enough time and effort, you could also just kick the door in like, you know, like many front doors. Um, and this guy was high on meth or something else. Um, but uh, thankfully, within two minutes, you know, I we were screaming at him to just, you know, go away. And, and the cops came and you know, they never actually found uh, they found one guy, but not the other. And what we found out of the fact is, yeah, there actually was somebody on our sidewalk down below who had what looked like a crowbar and was saying, I'm going to kill you. And I had seven neighbors. Right. I'll call, call 911 because, yeah, this guy's just screaming you know, i'm gonna kill you you know come down here and i don't know what they were arguing about but um you know that was definitely the closest i've ever felt to um you know, to, to being you know threatened right where it wasn't this generalized threat it was literally at my doorstep and only after the fact that i realized that there were two two threats when we looked at our security camera footage you know there's so much yelling and commotion and you know i could only see so much out. Of um, sort of where my front door is, that uh, you know, I didn't realize again until after looking at the security footage that, yep, there there were two guys, and um, it was just a very scary situation to be in.
1: I want um, to. There's a lot I want to ask about that, but uh, I, I, at the at the risk of you know self indulgent and you know, <laughs> and uh, alienating our audience, I won't go there. But um, I I want to shift gears into what you've gone through in the last few months. Um, before we started recording, you start talking about how you entered into some personal therapy of your own. You were really interested in that and what that's done for you and the processing you did through it. So c- talk, talk about that if you would.
0: Yeah, sure thing. You know, so I, I think in the, in the, in the general sense of, uh, you know, mental health and personal therapy, um, I like to think that I generally uh, am a, uh, a. I exude some some calm and uh, and sort of assurity, which is uh, part of how I also want to feel inside. Right, it's like everyone wants to kind of feel relaxed and uh, and, and calm, but uh, I'm actually a, a fairly anxious person, and you may not see that from how I how I present myself externally but inside my head you know i'm constantly you know you know i'm lo- i'm analyzing my situational awareness i'm constantly like thinking about all the things that i need to do and trying to sequence them and time them in a way that's efficient to make sure that i'm right getting all my things done on time and oh you know what what about my career what about my marriage what about my dogs like sort of the whole laundry list of like things that i need to do it right that that this my sort of obsession with getting things done quickly and at a high caliber, high quality, right. That can drive a lot of, um, a lot of my anxiety. And so, you know, for, for the past, you know, I guess maybe 20 years ago, I started kind of thinking about my mental health and it was sort of like, okay, like, Hey, you know, am I, am I just, am I stressed out? Like, is this an anxiety thing or is it just, I'm busy? And that's sort of, I think for, for a good part of my life, I always said, "Look, like I'm really busy. Like I, I commit myself and allocate myself to a lot of different things. Like right? I want to make a positive difference in this world, and right, we, we all have a you know fixed amount of time on this earth. So you know, let me let me get as much done, you know, good things done, and and uh, live life to its fullest as much as I can. Um, but over the past, you know, maybe ten some years, I started to move from okay." Yes, I am busy and yes, I'm, you know, often like stressed out because I've got so much going on, but, you know, does, is it necess- is it mutually exclusive, right? That maybe I have some, you know, like, you know, some, some anxiety, right? Which, you know, where maybe some, you know, uh, mental health and personal therapy might be a good tool, right? To help me manage that stress and anxiety, and, you know, over the past two years, I finally reached the point, two years ago, I reached the point and said, okay, look, like, yeah, like I'm ready, I'm ready to give personal therapy a shot. And, and I guess the, my point in telling this story, the way I'm telling it is I think for a lot of people like me, there's a taboo against going to seek personal therapy, right? It's like, I came from, I think, um, uh, growing up in Southern California sort of with my friends and, and sort of like my family um, sort of mentality uh, with like mental health is that is often a show of weakness right if you right. have uh, a challenge or problems like don't ask for help right it's like just buckle up and deal with it right don't don't whine and complain about your problems like the the it's sort of like the best way to resolve your anxiety is just to just go do more useful things right go go channel that 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 negative energy into something like productive and positive so i yeah. think with with you know, having grown up in that kind of attitude mindset mentality it's been a journey for me over the years to i think both see my friends and family and and i think just even random people in public right how they have benefited from therapy and mental health services, and destigmatizing the whole concept at a very high level of it's okay to not be okay, and it's also okay to go seek help. Right there's nothing weak or wrong about saying I need help. Right, and I I, I would counter right the negative narrative by saying I actually think it takes a lot of strength right, and humility to say to oneself, look, like, I can't do this by myself. Like, I, I need, at minimum, like, I need my family, I need my friends or, you know, co-workers, someone you trust, right, to say, like, I need someone's help. Um, and for me, um, you know, my, uh, my employer, uh, you know, they actually offer free mental health services. Uh, they, they Last year, they offered three one-hour sessions but starting January 1st of 2021, they increased that up to 16 sessions for, for the year, which is pretty That's incredible. Awesome. Yeah, and yeah, I think like a lot of, um, you know, employees who, you know, you get all these emails and such from, from your uh, employer about, you know, oh, employee, you know, health benefits and perks. And yeah, you know, sometimes you pay attention to, to, to some parts of those emails. But I think, you know, a lot of those emails get just get archived. Or deleted um and so i guess so i want to encourage people to you know look into what you're if you right if you're if you work for a company and they offer you know perks and uh any kind of mental health services uh to a minimum just just be aware of uh what options you might be available to you know i mean i'm getting you know free personal therapy sessions and you know that's uh that's a that's a pretty big chunk of change that uh money that i don't have to spend Um, so I think the last thing to mention about, um, you know, my personal therapy and like why, why it was very helpful was since the pandemic started in March of 2020, there's just been this pretty large increase in racist attacks against Asian Americans in San Francisco, where I live, New York and lots of other cities and towns across the country and, you know, having followed all of this violence, you know, for sometimes it was like daily. I mean, that takes a toll, right? Just to see, not just a generalized, like this wasn't a generalized look at at violence and, and attacks on like a random people. This was for me, extremely personal because you have Asian Americans who are literally being targeted, you know, on the street in the city that I live in, and it was just extremely stressful and depressing. I mean, I, you know, I definitely was depressed. I mean, I, it was sort of like COVID lockdown. So I think the sort of the high level kind of mechanics here is like, okay. We're in a shelter in place mode where we sh- we should be staying at home right as much as we can, and so like those few precious you know hours that we do spend outside of the house, like you want to enjoy. But if I can't enjoy that little time that I have to spend outside of my home because I'm constantly feeling threatened or I'm having to like, just have my situational awareness, situational awareness at an all time high because I might get attacked. That's not a very enjoyable experience, right? Just to feel um, you know, constantly under threat. And again, it's not a generalized threat. It's like a very specialized threat and I'm being targeted just because of my ethnicity. So that was um, a really tough two months. I mean, this was pretty much, you know, February and March of this year, um, you know, thankfully you know, I had eight weeks of uh, personal therapy and, and my therapist, you know, gave me some third party objective perspective, but then also gave me some, some tools and tips and techniques around how to manage, um, you know, my stress, my anxiety, uh, some of my depression, right. That was, uh, you know, kind of building up just kind of trying to make it through the pandemic and just looking at all of the sort of sad state of affairs, you know, happening in our country and, uh, and, uh, and, in my community.
1: Yeah. I want to ask, cause we were, uh, chatting beforehand about the, the perception versus reality thing. And I know that whatever we consume, we're, we're going to, um, we're gonna become that, you know. If if we're consuming fear, we're gonna become afraid. If we're consuming sadness, we're gonna become depressed. And um, you had mentioned that, you know, attacks on Asians <laughs> have been going on forever, and and I wonder if it was just more amplified now by media, by social media, uh, or if or if we're bringing an appropriate illumination to something that's been going on for ages. Now, and and I ask that not to invalidate the lived experiences, but to try to draw some sort of reasonable conclusion on how to how to address it. Because I mean, as a Giants fan, I get to watch all the Giants games broadcast on NBCSN, and of course, their local ads, and you see all this new, new as in the last couple of three, four months. Uh, I guess um, community support and and outpouring in the form of uh, Asian American Pacific, Pacific Islander uh, heritage awareness and celebration and whatnot and uh, and advocacy and and that's good. And last summer it was Black Lives Matter. And uh, along the way we've we've got you know the LGBTQ population that's been uh, targeted. And sa- same story right now. And now most recently with what's going on in the Middle East, we got anti-Semitism and um, and Palestinian stuff and it's like how many sub demographics are we going to have to get to where we go hey can we just can we just all respect each other like i don't know i don't know how effective that is when we're hearing about the outliers but in in aggregate most of us who live in the middle are not actually feeling the direct effects and i and i wonder if it's if it's because we're we're seeing them thrust in our face over and over and over again um, so i I don't know what your your take is on that or how therapy necessarily helped you because i think I think I heard you say that they brought your therapist brought some perspective to your uh your anxieties about that so if you wouldn't mind you know indulging the uh ignorant white guy here on that I appreciate it
0: yeah absolutely i uh, you, you brought up so many good points so so let me try and uh kind of tackle them in a in a in as uh, comprehensive a way as i can so I think yeah to kind of take a step back you know violence against asians and i mean if you look all across the demographics like okay like violence against you know asians and latinos and, and blacks have been been a thing for for decades and centuries right, right? so right. on some level the violence against asian americans is not unique however what is unique about the past year and a half is the inc- the, the big spike right the increase in percentage and numbers against Asian Americans and you know to be frank a lot and so then if you on your topic of like okay right it's like right we've got all these other demographics that are experiencing violence and right can't we all just you know kind of be nice to each other kind of thing I guess yeah. I I grew up in a world that right we should be colorblind right that race shouldn't matter right that we should treat people right with respect right and that and that um, we should we should um, kind of live live the live our lives how we would want other people to treat us. Now I think that should still remain true. However, where demographics are important, right? Whether we're looking at race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or, or gender, or, or any of these different slices, is that when it comes to violence and or to mental illness or mental ther- mental health there are there are big cultural differences that are influencing either the causation of the violence or the prevention of seeking mental health um and so i think if we want to either reduce violence or right get people the mental health resources right that that they either uh are looking for or that they don't even know that they're looking for or to help them get over that that those personal barriers of of seeking uh, you know, personal therapy, we need to understand the nuances, right, in each of these demographics. Right. So, um, you know, I guess with, with my, so my therapist, he was a, uh, a gay Latino. And one thing, right, that, that, uh, you know, we connected on was clearly like, we're both, we're both gay. And even though he was Latino, and I'm Asian, you know, minorities, in America have a shared experience. I can say pretty authoritatively and with high level of confidence that any Asian Latino or black person in America has experienced some level of racism at their point. I mean, it's a sort of, yeah. it's a sort of a flat out fact. Right. Uh, I, I mean, if I think if you find a, a, an ethnic minority here in America that has not experienced any kind of racism, like, God bless you, that's amazing. I wish that was everybody's experience. Um, But the point is, is right, so my therapist, even as I was telling him about this increase, right, in, in attacks against Asian Americans, even though he is a Latino, right, had not experienced that in his community, he definitely understood the general concept of being targeted because of the color of your skin right and 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 i think even for white people like i i, I guess i would hope that it, it it wouldn't be so far of a stretch of the imagination imagine like imagine i don't know if like people were wanting to attack white people because i don't know they thought you were like white supremacists or right, right like you supported the kkk and then oh you know let's let's get back at white people kind of thing it's like that would be terrible right that would be that would be like pretty terrifying um and i think that's That's, you know, I think the way that we sort of build empathy and compassion and understanding amongst each other is is to try and understand as best as we can, what is it like, right, to like walk in someone else's shoes? Right. Right? Like sort of, it's sort of irrespective of, on some levels, irrespective of your race and ethnicity and background. However, our race, ethnicity, where we grew up, you know who our family, what our family's values are, um, whether we had you know one parent, two parent, or no parents, right? Growing up, right? All these sort of, all these different, um, right? Slices of of life experiences uh, are, are, I think, are all are all relevant and important to to understand. Like, how do we how do we best support each other in our communities, and when? if and when a time comes where people need mental health or any kind of support that the community, that your community knows how to help you. And I guess even first and foremost, before your community knows how to help you, like it's obviously, I think best if the individual knows how they can be helped.
1: Right. Right. So
0: that when they get to a point of asking for help, but they know what they're asking for. But I mean, you know, obviously sometimes you just, you just know you're, you're, you're in a bad spot. You may not actually know what's wrong. And even just getting to that point of saying, okay, I need help. I don't quite understand what's going on or how I need help, but um, yeah, communities, right. We, we need, um, we, we need to have, I mean, that for me, like that's the social safety net, right. Is our local communities, whether that's our friends or families um, or, or, you know, local communities, that's, that's, that's who's, who's you know, going to be there to, to help us.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I asked that from a place of uh, <clears throat> clinical intervention, where if if somebody comes into my office and they say I'm I'm concerned with or I worry about, uh, the, my first inclination is to go emotional functioning and say, is this uh, is this a real threat or is it a perceived threat? And then if it's a perceived threat, what we can what can we do to help you um, gain some some perspective and not give over power to the to the perception right instead say okay i'm in control of my own narrative right and and in doing so i think we run the risk of invalidating the the personal experience it says no I, I actually am legitimately scared because i keep seeing this rise in, in numbers of what whatever it may be and we go all right all right so it's a, it's a legitimate threat um, and then now how do we how do we help you overcome this and it it seems that i get into a kind of a, a stickiness if you will where I I want people to challenge their own belief systems, not to abandon them, but to know from where they originate. And I, do, I find myself doing this with with teens frequently where they're like, I just, and that's why I'm such a, a stickler on language too as it pertains to uh, emotion versus cognition, where I go, I'm listening to people, I feel like my friends don't like me. I'm like, well, that's not a feeling, it's a, it's a belief. Where do you get the belief? And then we can drill down and analyze that, Sometime, one time, you know, so years ago or whatever, months ago, a group of friends made a snarky comment, and then the the individual receiving that generalized it and said, "Well, now I don't I don't think anybody likes me in, in my entire school." You know, okay, well, what can we do about this? We can walk in our own personal self efficacy, deciding that you know we can leave the the jerks where they be. But it, it crosses a line when it gets into violence, right? I don't want to be hurt. Words, words are one thing to navigate, you know, the whole sticks and stones things. But but when it moves to actual sticks and actual stones, I think it's right to help people be prepared to navigate actual legitimate threats to person or family or property. And and I don't I, I think as a clinician I'm a, I'm a little disempowered when I I say something like, well just get off Twitter. You know like look look around your neighborhood and um and make sure the dogs are there to protect you <laughs> um, but look look around your neighborhood are are you are you noticing this are are people you know being targeted, and how do you know they're being targeted for that reason and you know and try to try to create some some context there without invalidating. The very real experience that others may have had. We can do this with COVID too. I mean, lots and lots of people have died of COVID, and and we go, well, what's the what's the legitimate threat to you? Um, are you taking the steps that you need to protect yourself and your family? And you know, have you been vaccinated? And and all those things, and then ultimately get to a position of choice where we where we choose. Uh, where to give credence and authority to the external factors of life because they're always they're always sort of going to be there. And then what do we do about them? And if there's these if these ever present existential threats are looming, then and it starts to seemingly inflict every demographic. It's like, well, geez, how do we do this other than to say, yeah, man, the world's an ugly place. Violence is out there. Make sure your situational awareness is on point. And and I know that seems overly simplistic. And I and I I guess I want more ability to baby maybe uh, have those conversations in a competent fashion than just saying yeah you know the world's world's full of violence what can we do other than you know educate people to, to know where it exists especially when it seemingly exists everywhere when it's being shoved down our throat by clickbait media you know so I I don't know I guess I'm just thinking out loud here and expressing my yeah, own it, frustrations. It, it,
0: it, it, the, the, the get off of Twitter uh, advice is it makes me immediately think about my husband who he doesn't read the media much. Right. He's not on social media. He's very much uh, of a mind that, you know, what he thinks. Why, why would I fill my mind? Right. With all of the negativity, Total. violence totally. and just terrible things that that happen in the world. Uh, you know, I come from a different perspective. And maybe I, I'm on an extreme end where it's like, I want to know as much as like what's happening in our world.
1: Yeah. And I'm in your camp too. I agree. Yeah.
0: Right? I mean, I went through a point in my life, like in high school and college, you know, I was, I was reading 15 different media outlets multiple times a day. Like I had right two browser tabs, two browser windows open. One window was for mainstream media, everything from like CNN, Fox news, but all the way to the BBC, Al Jazeera, the economists, and then I had a second window, which was called Tech News. It was like Mac Daily News, Mac OS Rumors, and like CNET. Like I was a news junkie and it was actually pretty unhealthy, right, To be for me to just be like spending so much time kind of like, like following the media. So I think, you know, to some extent, sure. Like I think getting off of social media, like not watching the news or paying attention to it all the time, I think, I mean, everyone's like, personal consumption levels will vary, but this perception versus reality question, right, is, is a good one. And, you know, for, for, for two months, I think my perception and reality started to converge because I started to see almost every attack that happened every day. Right. I mean, there was a period of like, yeah, like two months where it was like, almost every day there was some kind of reported racist attack against Asian Americans.
2: Right. Still today. I see it every day. I do too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's it's one thing you see that kind of news and you sort of feel like, Oh, it's happened to someone else. Right. But it's a very different thing when you're reading something you're like, Oh, Oh crap. Right. This, this, this is happening to people who look like me. And And in my mind, there's just, nothing special about me that would protect me, right? From, from being another random, you know, potential random victim. Um, so I think kind of my experience about, right, how do you, how did I kind of move from the way that I felt my feelings and my beliefs and my beliefs, but moved into a kind of a, a better mental health space, you know, part of it was, trying to, one, understand what is the real scope of this problem, right, trying to understand is this sort of narrowed down to certain geographic neighborhoods, right, in San Francisco, right, and therefore should I avoid, right, those areas, or if I do frequent those areas that, you know, okay, my situational awareness, right, will be higher um, in those kind of areas. I think, my mind also goes into like short term. What are the short term versus long term things that either I can do myself, or things that I can support my community? So, on the short term pieces, it's it's about you know kind of evaluating. Okay, am I am I going to walk somewhere? Am I going to drive? Am I going to take a lift or an Uber? Uh, am I going to go park in that in that parking lot? If that means that I'm going to have to cross through some like shady, you know, kind of tent-filled drug user drug addict neighborhood which happened to me two weeks ago (laughs) and i decided to take the risk i'm like well you know i drove around i drove around for like 10 minutes trying to find street parking and ultimately i picked the parking lot because it was just it was easy even though uh it was literally like littered with all sorts of like you know human hazardous waste and needles and such um other kind of short-term things are just Leaving right, I'd leave, like I, I'm not living in San Francisco full time right now. Right, you know, I'm, in, I'm in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Like, thankfully, like that is, um, that's an option for me. But I mean, that's not an option, right, for for a lot of people to just like go buy you know another property and go live there, you know, part time or full time. um Well,
1: and if I may interrupt, Chris, I think it's really horrid that people believe that escape is the only option like at some point we got to combat this stuff and i don't i don't think continuing to bludgeon corporate america with diversity trainings is going to get done for the people who aren't going to listen to them anyway who are doing the attacks you know what i mean and and people should not be forced to move people should not be forced to pick alternate routes or avoid certain parts of town like that's that's not acceptable i would never want somebody to um avoid as a means of self-protection, that's, that's a horrible message to send. Not only because you're still continuing to live in fear. Now you're just living in fear of certain areas and you're trying to draw lines around your own life, but also it sends the message that to those people doing those things that it's tolerable and they'll just, oh, we'll yeah. just work around you. Right. Like <laughs> That's not it, cool.
0: It literally feels like Gotham city, right. Where Dude. the criminals have taken over and law enforcement is demoralized they're literally like handcuffed because they can't do anything. Right. Right. It's like the laws, the local laws in San Francisco are, are just so crazy off the charts where you, you you basically need to have killed someone for the SFPD to be able to actually do something. And of course, like that's like after the fact, right. It's like, it's like only after something terrible has happened, are the police actually empowered to do something. So you have, you have, you have you have um, you know demoralized and depressed law enforcement in San Francisco. You've got politicians who are also. I mean, we've we, we kind of dug our own grave here, right? It's like the, the residents of San Francisco and and the residents of California. We passed so many different laws, right, that take the rights of the majority away and have um, really enabled this small either criminal minority or these poor homeless people, you know, the, the, on the homeless side, basically the, the overriding sentiment is that homeless people have a right to live on the streets. And I think that's like patently false. I think these are public spaces. Nobody has a right to live on the street. Second to that. I mean, it's inhumane. I mean, like we shouldn't be supporting people living without, you know, good sanitation and like a roof over their head for security and safety. It's just, it's like, this is not a civil, this is a civilized society does not allow people to live out on the street. It's just morally and ethically wrong. And so where the city leadership is failing is nobody is empowered to make a decision to say either look, yeah, we need to like build more Homeless shelters, right, and more homeless facilities, but that's a short-term fix, right? Back to the short-term versus long-term, right? It's like the long-term solutions, right? How do we address the homelessness issue? How do we address violence, right? Violence, like people don't just, be, I was right. The vast majority of violent people are not born violent, right? right. Sort of like, like there's there's things that happen to people in their lives that, that lead them to do something violent. So what are those causes? How can we, and I think like the community sort of support of like education, like jobs, like mental health, medical services, um, right? How do, we, how do we give people in, in our communities, right? The, the opportunities and, and the support that they need to, to be successful. Um, and I think we right, the more successful and the healthier we are at the less likely, right. You right. are to like resort to violence to either steal or, or hurt people to, to make ends meet. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, these are not easy problems to solve, but, um, you know, we as a community have to tackle these issues head on and, um, you know, hopefully as we, you know, are uh, coming out of the pandemic here and, and start to um, kind of resume regular life? I don't know. We'll hopefully we'll make some more progress on these fronts.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's very difficult. So, you know, coming from gun world, right? And then kind of breaking into the mental health side of things and being invited to certain events um, where they were held in LA or San Francisco, right? And then you see this massive amount of homeless. I mean, just it's... It, to me in, in maybe it's because like they have certain areas like skid row in LA and stuff like that. It just, it's just, it's a lot. Right. And then being in like a Burger King and seeing that they let a homeless man beg for change right at the cash register. Like that was crazy to me. Like I, I was like, wow, like we're, we're actually like, it's not even outside as you walk out of the, out of the restaurant anymore or the you know fast food joint. Um, it was really interesting though. Like the first conference I went to with Mental Health America in L.A., um, there was a there was a gentleman who had raised his hand because they were kind of talking about the homeless thing. And he said he went on a jog in the morning um, in L.A. and he counted from his hotel in the two miles that he ran, he said 68 homeless people or something. Like, that's what he counted. And he said, why, why is there so many homeless people in L.A.? And what can we do? And it was interesting because the lady who kind of addressed the issue said that the problem is that California has some of the best, actually, mental health options for people if they use it, right? So, like, even with my ex-wife who had her struggles with mental health and and we were constantly looking for her under bridges and stuff like that uh, to make sure she was alive, uh, you know, they told me all the time, like, don't let her leave California, Like, don't let her go to another state. This is the best place for her to be. But then that begs the question is like, you have this stuff, you have the great weather and the climate and everything like that. But if, if you can't, if there's no incentive or the person's too sick to even want to get better, right. Cause a lot, that's a lot with the shelters. I learned that a lot of people don't want to go to the shelters because they have to be sober. Right. And and they, they don't want to, they don't want to live a sober lifestyle. So like, they don't want to go in there and check themselves in it's but so how do we do it without literally like walking the streets, almost like forcing people to go in. It's going to be a tough stuff.
0: It's hard. Yeah. Right. And on other restrictions, uh, at least in San Francisco, it's just like, yeah, you, you sometimes need to be sober. Uh, you're limited to the amount of items, right? Personal items that you bring. Sometimes there's no pets allowed. Um, and on the one hand it's like, well, Okay, duh. Like, right? Like, you got to have some amount of rules, but if the rules are um, pushing people away from from like these these homeless shelters and facilities, like, well, then what good is the shelter, right? And yeah, you know, it's yeah. sort of like where does one's personal freedom and constitutional rights like begin and end? I mean, it's sort of like you know, while on the one hand, while you know, it's inhumane to let people, you know, sleep on the street. I mean, right. Uh, You know, San Francisco has been criticized for this. At times they have literally gone with a van and like swept up homeless people. And like, then like, you're either going to leave and go somewhere very specific that, you know, is like uh, out of sort of out of sight, out of mind, or you're going to come in the van and we're going to take you somewhere. This happened during the Super Bowl a few years ago. Um, where, uh, yeah, the mayor decide, okay, like we're, we're going to at least temporarily move all, all these homeless people like out of the area until, until the event's over kind of thing. Um, and you know, that robbed a lot of people, it's resident San Francisco residents the wrong way, but it's also like, Hey, right. Like the city we're losing, you know, also just like a ton of, uh, of revenue every year from conferences that are deciding not to come to San Francisco. Because of I mean it's not just the homeless problem, but it's all, all these other things that we've talking about with like, you know, crime and and uh and violence and so it's just like yeah, I mean city leadership at some point they I mean they're gonna need to make some really tough decisions because what we've been doing, I mean look, the bottom line is this what we've been doing over the past twenty years is not working. Right. The problem is only getting worse. You look at all the numbers for for homelessness, um and, and it's, it's, it's getting worse. So we have to change tack. I don't have answers. I, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not, this is not a a, a forte of mine, but I just know being a San Francisco resident, it's like, I feel I've lived in San Francisco for 14 years. I've seen and felt the problem get worse. It's literally showed up my doorstep. Um, And that's just been, been, been really bad for, uh, for my mental health and for the mental health of, you know, you know, Hundreds of thousands of San Francisco residents. Um, I do want to circle back, um, back to um, culture, and, and particularly with, with with Asian American culture and the negative stigma around mental health and, and this sort of general. Um, well, let me just say this. So, you know, part of, of a part of uh, many Asian cultures, you're in, we're encouraged to be silent that there's sort of and what's driving that silence is often family pride. Right? And so what I mean by that is the concept of family pride is is very prevalent and strong in a lot of Asian cultures and so you are often your actions and the words that you say if they don't lead to making your family proud or somehow elevating or enhancing the family name then you better just like stay quiet. Right, and so this is very much about we don't want the family to lose face or be embarrassed or be ashamed. So unless you got into an Ivy League school, right, or you became a successful doctor, right, or you have something positive to say, like you just shouldn't say anything at all, right. So there's this the culture of silence is generally encouraged and rewarded in a lot of asian american families and so when you layer that on top of if you have personal you know uh, mental health crisis or you're depressed about something um you're just not encouraged culturally to say anything because you'll be pegged as weak as incompetent as you know then your family looks bad right back back to the whole kind of family pride thing you've you, you've now brought shame onto the family because you look weak and by extension, the family looks weak. Now you've aired your dirty laundry, right. About your mental health issues or whatever personal problems you may have. And that just like makes the family look bad. Right. So that's part of, and this is of course a stereotype and a general, a generalization about Asian American culture, but it's, 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 it, it's generally true. Uh, it's definitely it was true for, for, for my family, um, Although I will say on the flip side, you know, my parents were not the kind of parents that were like actively trying, they weren't actively trying to quiet me or silence me. And thankfully, like my parents have always supported me and uh, everything that I say and do, even if they don't like agree with it or understand it. Um, but you know, they, they they don't silence me, which I'm, I'm very thankful for, which I know a lot of other Asian you know, American families they're often trying to actively silence one another, right? And again, if it's if it's anything that's being said or done that could cause shame to the family, right? That's sort of this that 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 overriding dynamic. Um, but so, yeah, with mental health, I think you know in the in the Asian American community, I think there's also a distrust of institutions and. When it comes to the medical field and mental health uh, services, I would say if, if one wanted to make more inroads, you know, let's say you are a um, medical practitioner, mental health services provider, uh, and you want to make inroads in the Asian American community, looking to where Asian Americans, so sorry, let me put this a different way. Let me just double click into a very specific so let me even take a step. the IT guy' is
1: gonna double click all right
0: yeah <laughs> when we say when I say Asian Americans right like it's not this like single monolithic ethnicity right It's like within the Asian umbrella you've got the Chinese and the Japanese and the Koreans and the Filipinos and the Thai and the Nepalese like you've got all these different sub right, like, categories of Asians. So if you double click in a Chinatown for example, and so if you live in Chinatown, if you're ethnically Chinese, uh, if you, um, you know, you're maybe born here and you're maybe Chinese American, but if, if, if the, Chi- the Chinatown mentality is often we only trust other Chinese in Chinatown or in the Chinese community, right, of that city. So, so only certain institutions, like medical institutions would be trusted, right? And I think... I think this holds true in a lot of ethnic communities, right? Where it's like, yep. okay, right? Whether we're talking about like Italian Americans, yeah, it's like yep. you just like look back, right? It's like when when Italians and and the Irish, right, were you know immigrating to America in bulk, it's sort of like, well, you know, Irish and and, uh, and like German Americans, for example, like they're more likely to trust you know people from the same ethnic background as them for right for for medical services for. The, for their, you know, the butcher, the the baker, right? The all the groceries and uh, kind of other other services that they need, and um, I, I think that holds true for uh, for a lot of Asian Americans. Not all Asian Americans, but again, I think right, like Chinatowns in particular, right? These very like kind of strong geographical and cultural hubs that really, really revolve around um being ethnically chinese speaking mandarin or cantonese um and, and so yeah just sort of understanding that there are these sort of um uh, right like power sources in within the community right of like trusted authorities right of sort of uh, authorities of trust and power that um right it's like if you want to make inroads you sort of like need the blessing of some of these like uh yeah some- that community leaders, which I think is uh, um, maybe not lost on you guys, but maybe right on, on maybe some, you know, people who um, kind of don't see their lives through the lens of race and ethnicity may not realize that, Hey, that right. Like race and ethnicity is often a core part of who people see themselves as.
1: Yeah. I think, go ahead.
0: Go
1: ahead. I was going to say, I think that's a really good uh, instructive point. To a lot of us who, you know, I subscribe to yield theory. It's, uh, you know, it's this thing Christian Conti came up with, and it's meeting people where they are. You, you mentioned, you know, uh, wa- walking in their shoes, being them, Take, taking another you know, order of magnitude beyond that, be the person, right? And so that invites us to be curious and humble about what we ask of the individual sitting in front of us. But how do you do that on a population level? And if you can operate on some fundamental assumptions, like we've been discussing, I think that's useful, my my worry is that that we're getting too um, disaggregated, and we we're losing commonality because we're focusing on the differences. And I and I say that I said it at the outset. I you know I came out of the closet as a gun owning clinician so that the gun community would be friendly to clinicians. And we see it in the Christian community, in the Jewish community, you know, p- communities of faith. It's like, well, I want to go to the Christian therapist because they get me. Um, and we want to go to people who look like us, talk like us, act like us, feel like us um, broadly. But if take, if we take that too far, we run out of options, and especially in a provider-deficient field like mental health where we're largely white, largely female – uh, it leaves very few options for you know the the young Latina to find another Latina clinician, and and I worry that the messaging is with all the advocacy, we're pushing people t- into their own echo chambers, and you got to be a pretty savvy, non attached, out of the box, progressive. not mean in that political way, but like progressive in thought orientation, uh, mentality to to embrace that and say. Yes, and I want you to go integrate elsewhere as well, so that we don't just create this this echo chamber, or this house of mirrors that that only serves to isolate and um, and separate. I don't I don't think that's super helpful, um, but I don't know I don't know how to do that when when we're being you know we're we're being messaged that um, we all have to do this introspection, which is good, and I do advocate that. Um, but only do it with your own, your own community. <laughs> it's like, well, how, how how good is that? That doesn't seem to help. Um, right. And I think going back to your, your original question about like, you know, how do we fix homelessness? Um, I do have some, some ideas. And one of them hinges on something you alluded to earlier, which is like, that the guy who's, you know, caused all these problems over the last several years finally was, was arrested. And, you know, the state has to compel him into treatment. And that's unpalatable to a lot of people for all the reasons that we would think it's unpalatable. Um, But it it gets back to the five ethical presets of counseling that I think can precepts, not presets, if I didn't articulate that. That I I think are usually applicable to life in general. So you got you got autonomy, which is respecting the ability of the person to choose for him or herself what their decisions are. Uh, Justice, which is advocacy on someone else's behalf. You know, doing the right thing. Ju- uh fidelity, being faithful to the arrangement, the contract, the profession itself, uh honoring your commitments, non-maleficence, don't hurt anybody, and then beneficence, help somebody. And we can think that we're helping people and we're being just by compelling people into care, like with a with a legal compulsion to seek treatment like a 5150 in California, or they call it a legal two thousand and in Nevada, where it's an involuntary psych hold, which is temporary by nature, it's only you know seventy two hours typically. Uh, but what you're doing when you do those things is you're you're invariably imbalancing the autonomy. You're removing somebody's autonomy when you're telling them what you think they need. And sometimes the entire community can be in agreement on that that the individual needs this help, and we're going to force them into it. And that was something we used to do when we would lock lock people in institutions. And probably rightly so, uh, a lot of those institutions were gotten rid of in the eighties under Reagan. And, and the, what's happened since then is we've evolved from simply housing people to a focus on rehabilitation. We see this in the prisons too, where we just house people and we expect them to get better. and, And they don't because there's no intervention, there's no treatment going on. And we could do that with our homeless people. We could, we could, round them up and lock them in and compel them into sobriety and and you know mental well-being and whatnot but you got to know that you're sacrificing the autonomy of the individual and it's this weird tension where I think people want so badly to to help others who are clearly suffering and struggling to the point of life interven life-altering illness um, and the ability of the person to choose for themselves and and I don't somebody's going to have to have some spine at some point politically and ethically and morally to say we have to do this because our our country is being tattered but then when you do you have to ensure that the the treating clinicians in that environment have to be culturally competent enough to work with all those individuals and meet them truly where they are because everybody's going to have a different story about how they ended up you know being homeless or being addicted or or committing violent crimes or whatever they do Um, and, and we just simply have a provider shortage, which gets back to root cause mitigation. Uh, we got to throw our resources at that whole systemic holistic treatment model. And it's gotta be longitudinal because people didn't just get there overnight. They, they're, they're going to have a, they're going to have to endure a lot of treatment to get out of it. Not necessarily as long as it took to get them there. Hopefully if our interventions are worth anything, it won't be that long. um, but right now we've we've got we've got resources being thrown at surface level problems and not or I should I call them symptoms and not the root cause problems. So it's, we're going to have to rethink the whole thing and and somebody's going to have to take some real courage in doing so. But there's always going to be the tension between or among ethical considerations. Well, I want to do the right thing, but I also want to respect their ability to choose from themselves. Uh, well, gavel's going to drop on one side or the other of that of that ledge and. Uh, you know, who, who does it is going to be pilloried and vilified. And if they stick to it, maybe we end up with, with a great outcome. Um, but we can't just keep saying, well, it didn't work 40 years ago. Therefore it m- won't work now. Uh, we, we gotta be more innovative in our approaches. Um, yeah, it just it sucks. Yeah. Chris, I have a
2: question for you. I, uh, so, we had Tom from L.A. Progressive Shooters on last last episode. And um, you know, Tom talked about the Asian gun culture, right? Like the Asian-American gun culture. And he brought up a term that I'd never even thought to – I didn't think it was a thing, right? But he said the, the, the stereotypical picture of the rooftop Asians, which has become sort of like a hero – in the Asian community, right? Because, and especially for gun owners, right? We defended our property, we pushed back. It's like a gun owner's wet dream for many of the people in the community. Um, As most of us never use our gun for anything but (laughs) target shooting, right? Right. There are those that fantasize about going to war. But um, it was interesting because he said, we need to do away with that. He was against it because he said, know the the division between the the black community african-american community and the in the asian community has been so splintered right like you know it's been that way for a long time and he thought that those images didn't help right like hey we got to get over this what are your thoughts on that
0: yeah it's an interesting interesting thought um on the one hand i mean i think the rooftop korean or you know rooftop asian meme uh is very powerful because it's it, ex- it, it, it extrapolates this this concept of self-defense in, in the general sense, and it made it very specific and relatable to Asian Americans, right? I think there's, being a minority, I think there's sometimes things that minorities see and they just think, oh, like, that's a white person thing, right? And I think guns is one of these examples where it's like, okay, like, guns, like, legal gun ownership is just like a white person thing and so oh you know asians like i don't see a lot of asians like you know shooting guns therefore like i don't need to own guns because it's not an asian thing right and for for gun owners like me it's like well like i don't think gun ownership is a white thing or an asian thing or a ethnic thing at all it's an american thing but but to the point is I think a lot of people do look at their experiences and the choices that they make through the lens of race, right? And their own race. And so on the one hand, right, Asian Americans seeing this whole rooftop Korean meme, right? During the 1992 LA, LA riots and, and, and understanding that, okay, look, like Asian Americans have a very strong historical moment, right, in American history where personal firearms were used to defend, you know, life and property and liberty. Now, to Tom's point in concern, right, so what I have since learned about, right, the uh, the rooftop Korean meme is, yeah, a lot, this that was like a flashpoint, right, between the Black and Asian American communities, where I think it was like a few months or maybe a year prior to the riots, a Korean store owner, right, had shot and killed the fifteen-year-old, uh, you know, black teenager. She stole some stuff. It's like, okay, like, y- you can't be shooting kids for theft, right? Like, especially for like petty theft. Um, but like, that, you know, from what I understand, like that was one incident that straw that really just like broke the camel's back. So, I guess when I see the rooftop Korean meme, like I I see it as a symbol of what the Second Amendment is about which is where when the government can't be there for you or won't protect you right in this case it wasn't a tyrannical government but it was more about civil unrest lapd was under resourced and you know if 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 law enforcement can't be there for you well thankfully we have the second amendment that empowers each of us right to use firearms in self-defense where we have work to do is back on the community relations right and it's race relations right it's it's what was causing racial tension between the asian and and black communities back in the 80s and the 90s and you know i'm, I'm sure it's persisted right through today's time and, and this is about and jake right what you're saying earlier was great about it's like you know we can't have these echo chambers and we can't like just go live in our own little little worlds isolated from from people and it it really is going to take in order to heal if just if if we're going to heal communities and bring them together like they literally need to come together right it requires speaking with one another and engaging and, and creating meaningful dialogue building bridges and understanding of right what does it mean to be a black american versus an asian american where are these tensions coming from and what can we do to address those 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 the friction and the tension head-on right there's just the any kind of notion of burying our heads in the sand and hoping that the tension is going to go away is like that's a pipe dream right like problems like this don't just go away they're often rooted in, in in decades of sometimes right right institutional racism uh of just like cultural racism right between communities um generational right like just generational attitudes and, and morals um passed down some for the better some for the worse right but like those are hard cycles to break um but uh Intr- being introspective, like right, looking back at what is my life looked like, like, why am I who I am today? And I think everybody asking themselves those kind of questions, right? On the individual level to then, um, I mean, I think right change comes from us as individuals first. Right. And then once individuals change, right. Can we then go out into our communities, right. To then go affect that kind of a change. Um, but Yeah, it's just, these are, these are really tough, uh, really tough problems, but all in all, yeah, I mean, I I think the rooftop Korean meme is, um, it's, it's, it's done a lot of good. Uh, It's not, it's, it's not uh, faultless by any means, but um, it's, I like to just always understand the totality of any circumstance and take the good with the bad. I mean, I think that's, that's just sort of my, my general approach and that's my, Same approach I have with, uh, you know, the rooftop, you know, Asian rooftop Korean.
2: For me, it was kind of interesting because I had never, I mean, I saw the images. I I remember watching them live, right? And I never associated that with anything to do with race. I, I thought it was people protecting their property. But I also grew up in a family that was in the gun business and, you know, always preached personal safety. It wasn't until Tom said that. That I thought, wow! Like I'd never even thought about that. That, that how that could come across, right? Like because I was just looking at it through one lens. But I, but this goes back to what we're talking about. We have to have nuance and everything, right? We have to be able to discuss things. Yeah. You, um,
1: you know, and I'm uh, I'm sitting here wrestling with this because as as the white dude who's in his mid forties, you know, is grown up in Northern Nevada and fairly insulated. Um, I won't say that this is new. I mean, I, I embarked on my multicultural, culture, multicultural journey back in undergrad, and um, and it was good and it was awesome because I made I, I went to some cross cultural retreats when I was you know, twenty years old and made some horrific missteps based on my own biases and had them corrected. I was laughed at first, but then I was you know I got corrected by the the folks who were in attendance and and I learned and I grew from it and and now I'm being. Introduced to concepts like, um, you know, that are being posited by people like Robin DiAngelo and Ibrahim Kendi, or saying that, you know, racism is is endemic. It's an immutable characterological trait, and we'll never get away from it. And the way that I like to talk is is in terms of hope that we can break generational cycles and generational patterns, particularly in families, but in this case, it would be in cultures. And that messaging is not compatible with my messaging. That messaging says, "Nope, it's always going to be there, and all you can ever do is um, continue acknowledging it and um, pay your penance, you know, apparently in perpetuity." And that doesn't send a message of hope. That sends a message of hopelessness. And the way that I'm hearing you talk, Chris, is that no, we we can do this if we just you know start hashing it out to each with each other and have have mutual respect and understanding from our own. Uh, personal viewpoints and what we bring to the table, but what's being pushed through curricula in schools and in, and in businesses is Nope, it's never going to change. And I, I, I don't know how we combat that messaging.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It's
1: Chris, give us the answers. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> You're the guest, man. We brought you on for a reason.
2: <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> It's fascinating, you know, I've, I've spent, uh, you know, 13, 20, wow, 13, 14 years, you know, in Silicon Valley and the rise of corporate social responsibility has seen this meteoric rise. And, you know, I, my, my, my opinion about what they call CSR and, and the, in the parlance cultural, or sorry, corporate social responsibility, um, you know, CSR has, has grown immensely. And I used to think it was all good. And and the reason why I I used to think that way is because I was the direct benefit of that back in 2008, when I used to work at Google, you know, Google's a technology company, but in California, there was proposition eight, which was basically, uh, basically was banning same-sex marriage uh, or reaffirming that marriage was between a man and a woman. Now, Google at the time, they campaigned uh, basically for same-sex marriage. I forget whether it's like, you know, four against Prop 8. Um, but Google put themselves on the line and they like in this cultural battle, right, over same-sex marriage, like what does Google have to do with same-sex marriage, right? But as a gay man, I, I remember feeling so proud, right? I was like, holy crap, like I work for a company who's, sticking their their neck on the line and we knew we were going to lose customers right we were going to lose literally millions and millions of dollars over this controversial stance but then you know fast forward and and um you know i need to keep my current employer's name you know out of out of sort of you know this conversation um about firearms and such but you know my current employer is anti-gun right and and they have anti-gun policies right and their stance is oh you're right like we our anti-gun policies are going to help reduce the violence, you know, the gun violence, you know, problem in America. So now I'm on the flip side, right, of this corporate social responsibility movement, where it's like, wow, like, no, like, the, my, my, you know, my company is actively campaigning against a Second Amendment right that I, that I, I you know, vocally support. Then you look, you know, right, all of, uh, sort of uh diversity and like racial equality and sort of right what what sometimes feels like kind of force feeding i know they're not quotas but they sort of feel like right it's like we want to increase the numbers of minorities right and in certain companies and it's like i at a high level support the notion that we want diverse workforces right people coming from all Right, different walks of life, and I think it's like fine if you want to like recruit, right? Have like targeted recruiting and like advertisements for you know whatever Asians, Latinos, Blacks, or women or whatever. But um, it's a fine line, right? It's it's a it's a really fine line, and um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have any answers there. I guess I'm just uh, explaining like my perspective and my my lived experience about where corporate social responsibility can can be a great thing until it's not right. And I'm kind of in this place now where my perspective on should corporations be involved in the Second Amendment or be involved in, you know, all these other hot button topics. And I would almost say no like unless your business is direct for example like unless your business is directly related in firearms or the firearm space like you probably should not be talking about the second amendment or guns because primarily your company probably doesn't understand what they're talking about yeah right yeah, i mean that's that's the scariest part is you've got these companies who are getting socially pressured oftentimes right by all sorts of like lobbying groups and interest groups right? To, to be pro-diversity, right? Um, or to be anti-gun, right? To sign on to uh, all these initiatives to end gun violence when they, and these companies don't understand that these are all restrictions and infringements on a civil right that won't make a difference, right? These gun control initiatives like aren't going to make a difference in, in saving lives. And I'm not saying all, but like, you know, assault weapons ban and, you know, magazine capacity restrictions. Um, it's, it's, it's these companies like literally signing these uh, sort of, uh, what do you call it? Like not agreements, but saying, right. Oh, you know, I, we support, you know, all these gun control bills when these companies don't even understand what they're signing. Like that's, that I think is the ultimate scary part is when companies join these corporate social responsibility initiatives and they don't really understand what they're talking about what they're signing up for uh, and then you have employees who may or may not agree with right the company's stance and that just causes more division than you're uh, right pot- potentially losing business because you're alienating your customer base right I, I always like to joke that sometimes like I don't want I don't want my food or like I don't want like my big pencil like politicized like if I would need to go buy a pen, I just like want to go buy a pick big pen and not have to run through these filters. Like, are they pro gun? Are they pro gay? Are they pro this? Are they anti that? Like, I just like want to go buy a fried chicken sandwich or buy my pencil or like buy all my stuff without having to constantly be running, right. All these purchasing decisions through these corporate social responsibility filters. It's just exhausting.
1: Yeah, not yeah. to mention the the culture that you're ignoring by making these declarations, right? I mean, you could declare yourself to be socially responsible through the lens of whatever your board of directors or your company heads want, and end up offending fifty uh, percent of your staff. Uh, or yeah, you know, and it doesn't have to be that. It could be about uh, uh, health insurance. You know, the the plans about what is it? The, the, uh, the contraceptives, you know, that was a big, hot, hot flash point a while back where, uh, we're going to, we're going to take a stance against or for contraceptives being included in health plans. And it's like, well, now you're anti-women or you're pro-women or you're whatever it is. And it's like, is that your job? I don't, I don't know. And then, and then the people on the other side go, well, yeah, it's everybody's job to care about all these things. It's like, yeah, but what if we don't agree? That you know, There's cultural values in that too. And so it almost becomes these, these people cherry-picking which cultures they're going to support. And, and then invariably there's, there's, the, there's another culture or many other cultures who are, who are going to be off-put by that. So I, I feel you on that. I don't, know, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't even know really where it started other than just wanting to make some feel-good policy or something.
2: Yeah, I didn't know, like, so when I first got into the firearms industry, and I think I told this story before, Jake, on wanted one episode, but I didn't realize that I was so naive and such an ungun gun guy that I didn't realize that people could hate you because you're, you're into guns or you sell guns. Right. And it wasn't until I was at a bar one night and I was doing great with this really gr- great looking chick. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden she's like, what do you do for a living? And I was like, oh, I, I sell guns. We import guns. I like, I went, explained it. And I, I might as well have said, like, I'm a vampire that kills children. Like, <laughs> that, that was the reaction. You know what I mean? And it, and it was crazy because we started to argue and then she tried to bring other people into it. But that was the first time I experienced, like, someone actually judging me for my career. And I think about this a lot now because eventually I'm going to have to get a job, right? I can't keep doing Walk the Talk America for free. And I, I was looking at my resume the other day, and it's like 20 years of guns you <laughs> right like it, am i gonna be like outcast when i applied to certain companies um yeah. even though you know it could be right like somebody looks at the resume and they're like oh look at this guy he's a gun guy oh my god look how many guns he sold you know what i mean like he's killing children
0: yeah you're selling death and like all right you well, might be the guy that you know gets mad and you know, shoots up the workplace yeah it's all all of these negative stereotypes right about 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 gun owners and and I think it a big way of destigmatizing things is we just we all have to be out and proud about right whoever we are yes because you can't just look at the three of us off the street and, and understand that and know that like we either own guns or support you know gun ownership unless we are actively right promoting and, and talking about um, right firearms and a in a normal, non-violent way, right? It's like I, that. That's that's uh, unfortunate to hear your 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 uh, failed dating story. Mike and,
2: uh, Yeah, Columbus, Ohio. She's there. I don't. Know, I don't.
1: Know. <laughs> well, for, she yeah, hates me. You know, for me, I I this comes down to the depth of a human being, and I've said this before on different shows and interviews. Like, we all have to start acknowledging that we can be many things. You can be. Um, a gun guy, a mental health guy, a father, a husband who plays poorly adult league hardball on Sundays, a homebrewer, uh, you know, I was in a fraternity in college and boy, let me tell you the stigma that comes with that. Uh, I mean, we were, we were even told among fraternity brothers in the Greek community, don't wear your letters in certain people's classes because those professors will knock your grade. It's like, that's terrible. And, and I know why we, Oh, really? (laughs)
0: What house were you in? Oh,
1: oh! I thought you said that was me. By the way, um, I was all a right. SIG app, a Signify epsilon. Uh, yeah,
0: I'm, a, I'm an SAE.
1: Oh, my brother's an SAE. That's wild.
0: Yeah,
1: that's cool.
2: Yeah. So, and, and so the and the podcast right now because you're biased. <laughs> oh, you're a Oh, all right. it's good talking to you. Yeah. You're you're <laughs> Sorry, one of them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the point is, we can all be many things, and and I worry that uh, to get back to the social media thing. That when we consume this stuff, that tries to caricaturize individuals who are very deep, beyond whatever their public-facing personas may be, and I'll put—I would put personas or persone in a, in a parenthetical s or e is the is the plural. Uh, we do it with politicians and celebrities and we project on them what we need them to be to keep our own egos safe and then when they try to break out of that by being many things it's like it leaves people confused because they're no longer safe in their egos they have to cons- they're forced to consider the multiplicity of the truth that's presented to them and if you if you got an agenda it's going to be really hard to work with the person who's deep and and varied in their ideological beliefs or their or their worldview or whatever it is, because you can't just slap a label on them anymore and pretend like you know everything there is to know about that individual. And that's why I love I love talking to you about this because you're you're many things, right? Um and they don't in culture necessarily go together in the same box. And and I love that. Uh, I wish we could invite more people to have these conversations, and I do mean have conversations. I don't mean that flippantly because it's a buzzword or a buzz phrase. like, oh, we just need to have conversations. No, we really do so that we can appreciate the true depth of humanity that every human being brings to the table, and then we won't be so quick to judge. We won't be so quick to cast aspersions. We won't be so quick to throw vitriol and contempt around on the internet as if we know everything there is to know about a human being. And... uh, that gives hope. That gives hope that we can reconcile a lot of this hatred and healing that's being tossed about so carelessly and recklessly. But you know, when when you dare step out of that and you risk what Google risked, or you risk what I risked, or Mike, um, or yourself, um, it takes a strong constitution of knowing who one is and being able to withstand the the force that's eventually going to come back at you and say, "Well, I." I, the consumer of what you're producing don't like this aspect of you. Therefore I'm going to go tell all your, all my friends to avoid you or whatever. It's like, well, I guess, but that's going to leave you pretty lonely if you start doing that to everybody.
0: Yeah. I think ultimately, you know, we, for, for our own mental health and sanity, we all need to live the lives that we want to live and not be trying to live the life that other people want us to live. I think, you know, a lot of us experience, you know, right, pressure or influence from our, our, our parents and our family and, and friends to be a certain way, to dress a certain way, act a certain way, right? There's sort of all these expectations. And, you know, I've always been the kind of person, like, okay, well, like, I, I understand the expectations, but I'm not, and there's only so much of my life that I live for others. For example, it's like, of course I want to make my parents proud, right? Of course I want to like make my family and my, you know, my husband proud. And like, I will, I will do as much as I can to further the, that goal, but not by compromising my happiness. Amen. Right. I, it just, it can't be at the expense of my personal happiness. And I, I think, um, You know, there's a very specific example. Like, you know, um, my parents like really wanted me to be an engineer. And I started off as a double E in college and I couldn't hack it. And it was a very humbling experience, right? Because I went from being like one of the smartest people in high school to what felt like one of the dumbest in college. And I was like, holy crap, like I feel stupid. And is it, what does this say about my intelligence? Like, and I always thought that my intelligence was, right, like a key kind of point of pride, right, that I'm really smart. I can like, right, solve lots of problems. And, and failing in engineering and kind of coming to grips uh, with that was a, a key moment in my life. Where I'm like, I'm also just not happy doing engineering. Like, it's like, sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. It's like, I gave it literally the old college try and it didn't work. But I'm also happy that I've always pursued what I want to pursue. Um, I'm very, you know, I'm 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 41. I'm really happy with you know my 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 life success, career success, and you know on on many levels, I feel like I'm 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 just getting started, which is kind of a you know always a refreshing uh, outlook and perspective to have. So, uh, no,
2: no, but Chris, I'm gonna just say something. This is gonna sound funny. You're an Asian gay man who's into firearms. You must blow people's minds (laughs) like we talked about things that people could come after you about like it wasn't too long ago when coming out with your sexuality could get you killed right you think of Matthew Shepard and and everything like that um you know so I'm very proud uh I met you years ago like when you're coming off Top Shot not to see on tv again I'm very proud of you I think you are a great representative for for all three right um yeah you know, the gun community the asian community and the lgbtq community like you you do a great job so i i nothing but love for you brother
1: and i'll just say thanks, thanks for, for you
0: and your support
1: yeah thanks for tolerating my ignorant questions about all this stuff cuz uh, my I perspective my best, is limited <laughs> <laughs> hey uh thanks for coming on um as a reminder to everybody cuz i know you already answered this on the first show but uh, Mike's question is always, how do you tend to your mental health? And I'm, I'm going to ask this cause you're a repeat guest and he doesn't have to ask it, but remind everybody how now that you're in counseling, which is great. How else do you tend to your mental health?
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, yeah, I, I love spending time with family and friends and, uh, particularly, you know, like cooking, uh, I think like cooking and, and traveling in particular, are just like wonderful ways of, um, stoking my curiosity, which, you know, it stimulates my mind in a way that um, is uh, very stress relieving. Right. It's it's kind of a way of um, learning, but but experiencing life right by by doing things. Um, And so besides that, music is always um, uh, a ton of fun. I'm a musician I'm a volunteer baritone singer for the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And so music for me is another big sort of outlet to uh, help keep me balanced and uh, keep me happy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've got, and, and of course, like shooting guns, like shooting guns is very uh, therapeutic. Um, and, and I think it's about, for me, it's like tapping into the part of my mind where you just have to be hyper-focused on a particular activity to either be safe or to be effective, right? So as a musician, if you want to be a great musician, you just have to have this such a high level of, of mental focus, obviously shooting guns, right? Being safe. Uh, lately, my, my husband, and I would just got a, an, a mini excavator and a skid steer, which right, like heavy machinery, you know, for the forest here and we could easily kill ourselves if we're not paying attention <laughs> right? <Focused> on, uh, <laughs> on, on safely moving dirt from one place to another. But I love, um, yeah, just like, just like having to, uh, just be hyper-focused, right? Like be present, like be in the moment. I don't like being distracted by my cell phone or like social media stuff. And so, yeah, trying to just live as much in the moment like and being present as as much as possible i think is the general uh kind of approach that i have to kind of keeping keeping myself uh you know level and sane.
1: it's a great answer thank you i'm gonna have to come visit you in the mountains at some point and yeah my kids and go go galvanting girls
0: to me guns
1: <laughs> uh thank you chris chang for Showing up again and uh, doing us the honor and uh, sharing your your testimony about you know mental health isn't so scary. You can go get your mental health care and have a wonderful outlet. And for the businesses and business owners who may be listening, if you're frustrated that your uh, you know employee insurance plan doesn't necessarily cover mental health benefits, provide them yourself. Just pay for them yourself. Do an EAP, you know, employee assistance program, something like that. I think that may be the you know, one of the, one of the means to an end here. So um, on behalf of our group at Walk the Talk America, on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family, and certainly on behalf of Barnes Corps, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care.
0: Right. and ethnicity is often a core part of who people see themselves as,